You're listening to RUF at UT Podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. Tonight's readings come from a couple different passages from the New Testament, so if you'll look at your bulletins and join me. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 6, 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can he who died to to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We, now, or we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then lastly, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We have been, if you've been with us this semester... We have been doing a series, walking our way through this big Bible word called sanctification, which is the Bible's word for how people change. And sanctification is basically just the the lifelong process that God graciously takes you through to transform you into a whole person or into a holy person, a person that is humble and learns how to love God and love other people from the heart. That's what sanctification is. Kind of my nutshell summary of what Christian change and Christian transformation is, is this. Sanctification is God transforming you into the person you were created to be. That's it. Sanctification is God transforming you into the person you were created to be. And last week, if you were at AMB, we had the big marker board, and I just kind of did the big roadmap of what this big process looks like. Today, I want to try to answer one specific question, and to set up that question, I want you to think about the series, the, the television series, Planet Earth, with me for a second. It's featured in the Netflix season one or whatever, one and two. But on, on the first round, I don't even call it season, season one of Planet Earth, they, they do a little bit on like the exotic birds of the jungle. It's amazing. There are these, there are these crazy birds that, that have these insane colors and even more insane 
mating dances and mating rituals, and I want to walk you through one of them tonight. So there's, this, there's a male bird. This is probably on YouTube. Somebody put, find it and put it on the Facebook group before the end of the night. But there's, there's a, the male bird gets in his beak a little leaf, and he uses this leaf literally to clean the, the, the area in which he's about to do his little dance. So he's taking his thing, and he's, and he's wiping it down with the little leaf. He's, he's kind of making it spick and span. And once his little stage is kind of perfect and clean, he begins his little dance which is insane, but he gets up on his tippy toes, if I guess that's what you could call it, and he makes his wings stick out at the side, so it looks like he has this tutu on, and he starts like going back and forth like this, and he's bobbing and he's pecking his head. I'm doing a great imitation. You, you, when you see the video, you'll know. And that apparently is what gets the ladies, because eventually a lady bird kind of shows up, and she's kind of showing some interest. And so when she's there, she kind of cocks her head to the side, and she's just kind of evaluating his dance. And he starts really, like, trying hard at this point. Now he has an audience. He's going all out. And so he's doing his thing, and he's, and he's bobbing, and he starts making this weird clicking noise. He's, like, going crazy. And then after a few minutes, she flies away. She's like, I'm good. And the, the narrator comes on, and he's, you know, he's got this like, deep British voice. And here's what, the, here's what the narrator says once she kind of flies away. <clears throat> it's hard not to feel deflated when even your best isn't good enough. And the bird like, shrinks back to his normal size once she flies away, and he's like, kind of downcast. It's hard not to feel deflated when even your best isn't good enough. And I watched that. I was watching that with my wife, and I was like, that resonates so deeply and so personally. I'm like watching Planet Earth, and I'm learning about myself. Because I, you know, I feel that pressure. I feel that, like, I'm constantly being evaluated. I constantly feel the pressure of I have to perform, I have to impress. And I constantly hear that voice of, no matter how hard I try... Not good enough. And I don't know if you resonate with that. I don't assume that you do, but maybe you have a voice inside of your head that goes something like this, similar to mine, that goes like this. I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not cool enough. I'm not athletic enough. I'm afraid that I don't fit in. I don't matter. I'm not important enough. People don't care about me. I don't measure up. I've messed up too much. I don't have enough faith. I can't keep up. I feel like a nobody. And so here's the question tonight. If if you're somebody that has that voice inside of you, how do we change in light of the fact that that voice is always there no matter how much progress we make? No matter how hard we try, no matter how much we improve, no matter how, many, how much progress we get, there's always that voice reminding us that no matter how much progress you've made, still not good enough. Still not enough. Where you want to be and where you are is still, there's still quite a big gap. What do we do? How do we change? Don't you just want to give up? How do we keep going when that voice is always there? That's the question that I want to try to answer tonight. And you may or may not know this, but did you know, if you consider yourself a Christian, 
Did you know that the Bible only uses the word Christian, that word, three times? Saint, you know, Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, doesn't use the word once ever. In fact, the dominant language that the Bible uses when it wants to talk about people that you and I would call Christians, the Bible says, rather, it's someone who is in Christ. That's the language. If you're a Christian, biblically, the language is you are in Christ, you're in him. That phrase, that little idea shows up 164 times, give or take, throughout the New Testament, which means this is a pr- it's a pretty massive deal. And so if we're going to under- try to understand how do we change, how do we even understand what a Christian is, we have to begin to wrap our mind around what does it mean that you are in Christ. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. And I want to talk about it really under two different headings. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means, number one, that he represents you. And it means, number two, that he transforms you. That's not exhaustively what it means to be in Christ, but that's what we're going to talk about tonight. What does it mean to be in Christ? He represents you. He transforms you. What does it mean that he represents you? I don't think this would be a huge deal for you to grasp because of where we live. We live in America, and we live in a country that is a democracy, which means that everybody can vote And our whole governmental structure is built on this idea that you have a say in what our country does. We don't live in a monarchy with somebody who just tells us the way that it is. We get to vote. But the problem with this reality is that there's a million things that we could vote for. And nobody has time to research and explore and, and figure out all the realities of what, are, what the policies are and who people are voting. So what we do in our country is we elect representative officials that hopefully go and vote on our behalf, and they hopefully vote in accordance with our interests. We live in a representative democracy, right? So that person, we, you know, essentially we live or die based off of our representative's performance. It's the same way with um, the legal system. You hire a, you know, you hire legal representation and your guilt or your innocence is determined on how well that person representing you performs. That's what it means to have somebody represent you. So when you say, when you say that you are in Christ, we live and die based off of Jesus' performance. If you want a visual, here's the best kind of visual that I could give you that I'm borrowing from another pastor. Think of like a Russian nesting doll. You know these things? You got like the small doll, and then it's in a little bit bigger doll, and then that's in a little bit bigger doll. That's kind of an interesting picture of what it means to be in Christ. You are in him, and so you live or die based off of what he does, his performance. Look at, um, look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. We'll start at the top. The easiest way that I could summarize what it means to be in Christ is this. What is true of Jesus is true of you. Russian nesting doll, he represents you. What is true of Jesus is true of you. And let me show you where I get it from. 2 Corinthians 5.21 begins like this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. We'll stop there. This is talking about Jesus. It says Jesus knew no sin, meaning Jesus was sinless. He was perfect. He was perfectly righteous. And yet God made him to be sin, meaning God treated Jesus as if he was the biggest sinner in the world, even though he was the most righteous person in the world. 
here's the best way I could, I could come up to illustrate this. I actually read this story recently. This is a story that took place centuries ago in ancient China. But there's a story that there was this, uh, the bailiff of the town went to the town judge and said, hey, judge, you need to know something. Someone just got arrested in the town square for stealing water, which in this particular village was extremely scarce. And so the punishment, the law said, if you're caught stealing water, you will be publicly beaten in the town square, 40 blows on your back. So the bailiff goes and he tells the judge that. And so the judge follows the bailiff to go find this person that's been arrested. And when the judge gets to the town square and sees who it was that was arrested, he's shocked because the person that was arrested for stealing water was his mother. And he's got this enormous problem on his hand because he loves his mom and he doesn't want anything bad to happen to his mom. But if he is not just, if he does not uphold the law, the village is going to like disintegrate into anarchy and everybody's going to be stealing water. It's just going to be chaos. So he looks at his mom, the judge, and says, you have committed a crime. And because you have committed this crime, uh, the penalty is that you must receive 40 blows in the town square. And so she's tied up to this stake in the town square. And then the judge goes over to the bailiff and he takes off his robe. The judge does. judge takes off his robe and he goes to his mom and he embraces her, wraps her in his arms and tells the bailiff, I want all 40 blows to land on my back. And that's what happens. And that's the picture of what it means to be in Christ. He receives the blows that you deserved. He didn't commit any crime. He was perfect in the eye of the law. And yet he receives the justice for you on your behalf. And as a result, in the eyes of the law, your slate is wiped clean. And now here's the question. Is that enough, though? Is it enough that Jesus just sort of erases all the bad stuff that you did and got punished on your behalf? Uh, think of it this way. Um, I played uh, basketball in high school. I was on the high school basketball team. I don't know if, if for your high school athletics, if y'all had team managers that like kept all the stats. We had team managers that sat on the bench with us. They didn't dress out in the uniforms, but they sat on the bench and they kept the like score book, writing down all the stats of everybody's stats. And let's say that in this particular game, I go out and I play an, a horrible game. I foul out. I get zero points. I'm just throwing the ball off the rim. I am, you know, I got 17 turnovers. And let's say after the game, I go to the team manager and I'm like, hey, I can, is there any way that you could be so gracious and just erase all of those bad stats. Can, can you cover over my transgressions, please, please, please? And let's say because they are so gracious, they do that. And they take their eraser out and they erase all of my bad statistics. And then I take the scorebook home. Here's the scenario. If I went home that night and I showed my mom and I said, Mom, listen, I know you weren't there to see the game tonight, but I want to show you the game that I had. And I show her the scorecard and I say, are you proud of me? She would look at it and see what? She would see nothing. And I think that that is how most Christians think about what Jesus has done for us. We think what Jesus has done is he has come and he has kind of wiped our slate clean. He's kind of erased all the bad stuff, but now we have this blank 
slate. And so when God looks at us, he doesn't smile. He's not proud of us. It's our responsibility to start filling it in. We've got to start performing. We've got to start doing good stuff so that he'll be proud of us. The problem is our performance, yours and mine, is really bad. And that's why we constantly live with this kind of deep-seated sense of he's always disappointed in us. He's always just sort of not that thrilled with us because we're not doing that great. But I've got good news. That's not what Christianity is. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not that you have a clean slate. The gospel is whatever is true of Jesus is true of you. You don't come with a blank slate with no statistics. You get all of Jesus' statistics for the life that he lived. You've got 43 points. You've got 18 rebounds. You hit the game-winning shot. You get all of the credit for Jesus' performance. You have his statistics. You get the credit for feeding the 5,000. You get the credit for raising Lazarus from the dead. You get the credit for feeding the poor. You get the credit for always loving the outcast and always perfectly loving God and loving your neighbor perfectly. God sees you as perfectly righteous in Christ. Look back at 2 Corinthians 5.21. Here's how the rest of the verse goes. For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, there's the phrase, in him we might become the righteousness of God. In him you become the righteousness of God. You get God's righteousness. He gets credit for your performance. You get credit for his performance. What is true of Jesus is true of you. That's what it means when it says that he represents you. Now, why does this matter? This is thick theology. Who cares? Okay, go back to that inner voice. You know that voice that says, I'm not good enough. I'm not doing enough. I am not enough. Whatever. What do we do to try to combat that voice? Every single one of us tries to prove that voice wrong or tries to combat it and try to silence it in some way. And what do we all instinctively do? Our instinct is work harder, try harder. Uh, we shoot for a 4.0. We shoot for a high-paying job. Uh, we get moral. We get religious. We get devoted. And you know as well as I do, right, that no matter how much you try, it doesn't silence that voice. And you know this is true. I mean, have you ever thought about this? Why is it nine people can give you compliments and one person can give you a criticism? And what's the one thing you're going to focus on? What's the one thing that you're going to just just constantly be meditating on? It's the criticism. Have you ever thought, why is that? Why do we only focus on the criticism and we just kind of ignore the compliments? Here's why. Because deep down, we know that we're not enough. And when somebody criticizes us or even says something that's slightly against us, it reinforces our understanding of ourselves. We know that we're not enough. And so when somebody points it out that we're not enough, we, we feel exposed, we feel like the, the act of trying to cover it and trying to work hard to make sure that that goes away, we feel like it got, it got found out. So we feel like a fraud. We feel exposed. And that's all we can think about. That the game, we, we, we didn't play the game well enough. 
and it just crushes us. Not enough. Not good enough. Not smart enough. Not whatever. But here's how this kind of intersects with this. If you are in Christ, you don't have to live like that anymore. To be in Christ means that your sense of self is rooted in his performance, not yours. And what that means is that you can know deep down, I am not enough. But it's okay because you no longer feel like you have to be enough. Because Jesus is enough for you. What is true of him is true of me. When God looks at me, he smiles and he is proud of me because I find myself in him. And so what that means is at the end of the day, no matter how crappy of a day you had, no matter how insecure you feel, no matter how many criticisms you got, you can have a deep inner security that knows that God loves you and he is for you. You may not be enough, but it's okay. You don't have to be. Jesus is. Look at Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is an amazing verse. That is invincible security. I mean, that's pretty breathtaking. No condemnation for those that are in Christ You might condemn yourself, you might be condemned by the world, but the only judge that actually matters says no condemnation for those in Christ. He represents you. That's what it means to be in Christ. Here's the second thing. I think it gets actually better. If that sounds amazing to you, it gets better. To be in Christ means that he transforms you. Not just that he represents you, but that he transforms you. Uh, Some of you, um, if if you've If you're thinking this out, you might be thinking, okay, wait. You're saying God's acceptance of me is based on what Jesus does, not based off of what I do. Okay, so then it doesn't actually matter what I do. I can kind of go send my brains out now. I mean, if there's no condemnation for me, for no matter what I do, no matter how much I sin, if there's no condemnation then I really, I can kind of do whatever I want now. I mean, we've joked about this before, but this is, you know, if you're thinking God loves to be gracious, I love to sin, this is an amazing relationship, right? If you've never asked that question before, you've never really heard the gospel before. Because the, the gospel, the grace of the gospel is so scandalous. It's so over the top. It really is like the wealthiest person in the world hands you a signed blank check and you're like, I can really write in any amount that I want at this point. Like, I can do whatever I want now. If you've never asked that question, you've never interacted with the staggering grace of the gospel. And so Paul anticipates this in Romans 6. If you look at Romans 6, 1, um, he has been for five chapters in the gospel, in, in the book of Romans, pounding out what the gospel of grace is. Grace, 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 grace. It's all about Jesus, not about you. It's all about Jesus, all about you. And then he says in chapter 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And that's the question. Should we just do whatever we want? Give God lots of opportunities to be gracious since he loves being gracious? And look at his answer. By no means. Okay, why? Why is his answer, by no means? And here's his answer. 
For the rest of this chapter, and I'm not going to go into super detail, we'll just do a, a, a skim, a light sea-do on the surface skim. But here's what he's going to say. To be in Christ means that he transforms you in a way that I really don't even fully understand, in a way that's really mysterious. When you are in Christ, you are united to Jesus in such a way that you are connected to his death and his resurrection. What's true of Jesus is true of you. Jesus died, you died. Jesus was raised to new life, you have been raised to new life. Let me show you in the passage. Let's, let's, let's start with you dying, because that's kind of a big deal. Look at verse 4. It says this, we were buried with him. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him. Verse 8, if we have died with Christ, on and on and on. I mean, this whole passage over and over, the Bible is saying, if you're in Christ, you have died with Christ. (laughs) If you're in Christ, you've died. And you might be hearing that and thinking, but I haven't though. As far as I remember, I don't think I was crucified on a cross and buried in the ground and died with Jesus, as far as I know. What in the world is Paul talking about? Because he's writing this to real, living, breathing, actual human beings and saying, you've died, you've died. I've been crucified with Christ. You've died, you've died, you've died. What's he talking about? Look closer at verse 6. He says in verse 6 that your old self has died. Okay, what's your old self? Your old self is who you were before you were in Christ. That that you has died. Your old self, here's how I would describe your old self. Your old self was dominated by things like comparing yourself to other people, selfish ambition, ranking other people, judging other people, dominated by wanting to make a name for yourself, dominated by lust and greed and envy and anger and anxiety, obsessed with comfort, obsessed with getting ahead. In other words, the old self is defined by three things, what I do, what I have, and what people think of me. That's the old self. That's your old self, what I have, what I do, what people think of me. And Paul says that old self is dead in Christ. That old self has been crucified. There's an amazing example of this in um, ancient church history lore that, you know, St. Augustine, who was this, you know, big church father in the fourth century, he, uh, before he was a Christian, he lived this crazy promiscuous sexual lifestyle and had mistresses and prostitutes and kind of the whole thing, and became a Christian and was radically altered, radically changed. And years later, he finds himself in the city that he used to go to, and as he's kind of walking through the streets of kind of the downtown, there's this, one of his old mistresses, one of his old prostitutes, calls, sees him and calls out, Augustine, Augustine! And he kind of keeps walking, and she thinks, and he doesn't hear me, Augustine, Augustine, Augustine! And he keeps walking. And so she runs up to him, grabs him by the shoulders, turns him around, and is like, Augustine, it's me. You like this acting job I'm doing? <laughs> Augustine, 
It's me. And he looks at her and he says, I know. But it's not me. And his point is, the Augustine that you knew is dead. The old me is dead. This is the same reason why the old Taylor Swift can't answer the phone right now. (laughs) Only difference is the old Taylor was better. Um, But this is the reality. This is what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying that Christianity is not about you becoming a better person. Christianity is not a self-improvement project where the old you just gets reformed and more manicured. Christianity is not about reforming your old self and bettering your old self. Christianity is about killing your old self and actually having a whole new self come up in its place. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 down there at the bottom. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there it is again, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, you're not just united to Jesus' death. You're united to Jesus' resurrection. What's true of Jesus is true of you. Jesus died. You died. Jesus was raised to new life. And guess what? You have been raised to new life. Here's a couple examples. Look at Romans 6, 5. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Uh, Verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What is true of Jesus is true of you. Jesus died, you died. Jesus was raised to a new life, and guess what? You have as well. The best way that I think I can illustrate this is Beauty and the Beast. The reason why that movie is a tale as old as time is because it is, it's the gospel story. If you remember the story, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it before, if you, if you have not seen Beauty and the Beast, it's about this hideous beast imprisoned in isolation by this dark spell, right? And this pure beauty enters into his life, and in a way that doesn't make any sense, she loves him. It doesn't make any sense. Why would this beautiful person love this hideous beast? It's irrational. It doesn't make any sense. He doesn't deserve it, and yet she does. And when she does, uh, her love for him transforms him. The dark spell is broken, and his true humanity is restored. He becomes his true self, this kind of handsome prince. That is what the gospel is. We are all imprisoned and corrupted by this dark spell of sin. And here comes the pure beauty of Jesus who comes into our life and loves us in such a way that is irrational and it doesn't make any sense and it's offensive and his love is what breaks the spell. And we are transformed in from this old beast that we were and we become what we were created to be. We become our true selves. We become truly human. That is what sanctification is. You becoming what God created you to be. But here's the, um, here's the deal. Um, we have been a, living as a beast for so long, it's so easy for those old habits 
to just not go away. So let's say the story continues, and let's say that Belle and the beauty and the prince are sitting down and having dinner a month after the curtain falls at the end of the movie or the play or whatever it is. A month after the story, Beauty and the Beast, and they're having dinner, and Belle says something that just totally pisses off the prince. And he, without even thinking about it, just purely out of just spiritual muscle memory, relapses into acting like a beast. And so he growls, and he takes the table, and he throws it. And he gets angry, and he storms off, and he runs, and he pouts, and he goes and finds a dark corner in the castle, and he's just hiding out by himself. And then he catches himself, and he thinks, whoa, 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 I'm not a beast anymore. Why am I living and acting like a beast? That's what it means to be a Christian. You have been freed from being a beast, but the habits are still there. And now the reality of what it means for you is to be who you actually are now. Most Christians, I think, know what we are saved from. We're saved from our sin. I don't think many Christians know what we are saved for. Did Jesus come and the whole point was just to forgive you so that you could continue to live a destructive, painful life? No. He came so that you might walk in newness of life. You might actually be and do what you were created to be and do. Now, I know that's a lot and I've just thrown a lot on you. Here's how I want to end. I want to end with just one scenario of what this might look like in practice, and then we're done. Here's the scenario. Let's say uh, next week you and your friends um, find yourself, it's the weekend, it's been a long week, and you, you link up with some buddies and y'all find yourself at this party in the fort. And you're a Christian, you go to RUF, and you're in a small group. Maybe you're even a leader within RUF or a leader on this campus. You're, you're in Christ. But it has been a, this microphone, hello. It has, been, it has been a hard week. Let's say it's been a stressful week. You've had three exams, some big stuff happened with your family. You have just been wiped out, and you here you are at this party, and so you think, it's been a hard week. I am, I'm going to throw down because I need to relax. And so you have one too many, and uh, you don't do anything crazy, but you know, it's obvious you've crossed a line. It's obvious that people know that you're drunk. It's obvious that you've, uh, you're acting in a way that's, you know, you're kind of making a fool of yourself. And if the drinking scene, if that's not your temptation, let's just say for you that particular weekend, it was just you giving in again to uh, crossing the line sexually with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. When you're together, or or when you're apart, you really want your relationship to be Christ-like. You want Jesus to be at the center of your relationship. And yet, when you're together and you're watching Netflix and you're on the couch, gosh, I hate this mic. I hate every mic we ever have in RUF. You can't resist, and so you give in and you fail, or, you know, whatever it is for you. You give in to the old habit of looking at porn. You... um, uh, maybe for you, it's, you're the kind of person where you, you have, you've done nothing wrong. You, f- you feel like you have no sin to show for. In fact, your biggest problem is that you, you compare yourself to people like that and think that you're better than them. Whatever it is for you, 
How does a Christian respond to themselves when they've failed in some way? I think here's what a Christian would do. A Christian would say, what am I doing? I'm no longer a beast. Why am I relapsing into living like one again? And then, rather than plunging yourself into shame and guilt, which is to give into that voice and to say, I I am such a screw-up, I am such an idiot, how can I call myself a Christian and still do these things? How can I do this? Rather than plunging yourself into shame and guilt, you plunge yourself into the grace of God in Christ. And there you, 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 you lean on that bedrock reality of there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. And you rest on the security of his representation for you. What is true of Jesus is true of you. And you can know in your heart of hearts that even if you have blown it this past weekend, that God looks upon you with a smile. That God delights in you. And then as you think about the next weekend, as you think about, okay, what do I do in the future? Because next weekend is coming. The temptations don't go away. Rather than pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and just thinking, okay, I'm going to try harder this week. I'm going I'm to really try hard to read my Bible more this week. What you do is you plunge yourself back upon Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you to be my strength so that I can be the person that I am in you. I'm no longer a beast. Help me to not relapse into living like one. Help me to live in a way that is true of how you have redeemed me to be. What is true of you, Jesus, is true of me. Help me to be what I am in you. That's the gospel, that what is true of Jesus is true of you. That's really good news. Let me close in prayer. Father, I know that this is heavy stuff. This is thick. This is theological. This is hard to even wrap our heads around. What does it mean that we've died, that we've risen? Father, as we, as we press into these realities and we think through what this might mean for our own lives, I do pray that you would strengthen us. Help us to be who we are in Christ, to not live like the beast like we've always lived like, but help us to live in accordance with who we really are. Redeemed, new creation, old is gone, new life has come. Strengthen us and remind us that that voice inside of us is not the overwhelming truth about us, that what is most true about us is that there's no condemnation for those in Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name.